IO9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 49 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, this is John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of Lightspeed and Fantasy Magazine, and I've also edited several anthologies, such as The Way of the Wizard, which features tales of wizardry and witchcraft from authors such as Neil Gaiman and George R. R. Martin. And I'm David Barr-Kirtley. I'm the author of many short stories, including Blood of Virgins, about a college student who comes to fear the blood-guzzling dragons written by his classmates. The story was originally published in Realms of Fantasy Magazine, and also appeared as episode 88 of the Escape Pod podcast. And our guest today is R.A. Salvatore. He's the author of dozens of fantasy novels, most of them connected to the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game. He created perhaps the most popular character in the history of Dungeons & Dragons, a dark elf named Dritz du Erden. Salvatore's novel Homeland describes Dritz growing up as the only child with a conscience in an underground city where society is based on selfishness and cruelty. His most recent novel featuring Dritz, which is out now, is called Neverwinter. All right, let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with R.A. Salvatore. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Okay, so you know, uh, back in 2001, I attended the Odyssey Writing Workshop, and you came for the day and sort of told us about some of your experiences as a writer. And it was really interesting. I was just wondering if I could get you to maybe repeat some of those stories here. Um, and so the, the first story I remember involved this big snowstorm when you were in college. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, basically, I when I was very young, I'm talking kindergarten, first grade, I used to read everything I, I could get my hands on, and I would write all the time. I had this wonderful collection of first edition Peanuts books, Charles Schultz Peanuts characters. I love Snoopy. I used to write Snoopy books. But then something very strange happened. As I went through school, school beat the love of reading and writing right out of me. And it got so bad that by the time I graduated high school, the only reading or writing I was doing was what I needed to do to get the grades. And I actually started college as a math computer science major. And then uh, my freshman year, so it was 1977 for Christmas, my sister gave me a copy of, you know, I, I, was, I was looking for money. I was 19 years old. I had a car that broke down every day. I just wanted some cash. But she gave me some books in this little white slip case. And I was pretty upset about it. I'm like, what am I going to do with books? And I just threw them aside. Two months later... I remember it was a Monday night, so it was February of 78. It was a Monday night. I went to bed, and we were supposed to get a little bit of snow. So like anybody in school at any grade level, I was hoping school would get canceled so I could have a day off. And I woke up the next morning, and I looked down. I had this beautiful Mediterranean blue 1969 Mercury Cougar with a black vinyl roof. And I looked down at where my car was parked, and my car was gone. <laughs> and I freaked out. I thought my car was stolen. Running downstairs screaming, somebody stole my car. And then I realized that black spot I had seen wasn't the driver. It was the roof of the car. <laughs> we had the uh, the great blizzard of 78. Uh, so we didn't have school that day. We didn't have school that week. We didn't have roads that week. You could <laughs> not legally leave your house. If you went out of your house on a snowmobile, you would be arrested. They wanted nobody out because they couldn't open the roads. So I was, here I was, 19 years old, and I'm trapped in my mother's house. Oh, joy. But I wasn't trapped. I found those books my sister had given me, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And I went to this place called Middle Earth with a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins. And it was amazing. And I remembered 
I remembered what it felt like to love reading. And I remembered, you know, what it, what it used to be like when I'd be huddled under the blankets with my Peanuts books back in the second grade or whatever. And I kept thinking while I was reading that book, why didn't somebody give me this book to read when I was in junior high school? Instead of giving me Silas Moner or Ethan Fromm or Moby Dick. Oh, God, you know, these <laughs> books had no relevance to me. Why didn't somebody give me this book? And it changed my life. I went back to school. I changed my major to communications because... All of my electives became literature courses. And within a year, I was reading Shakespeare and reading Chaucer and laughing at all the right places and appreciating James Joyce. I was ready for that type of literature then. I wasn't back in the eighth grade or ninth grade. So I fell in love with fantasy, it ch it, and it really changed my life. And when I ran out of fantasy books to read a couple of years later, I wrote my own. Yeah, and then could you could you tell us about that book and sort of how you ended up uh, submitting it to TSR and and what happened? Yeah, it was well. Actually, I wrote the book in between the fall of '82 and the spring of '83. I was working in a plastics factory, and my job all day long was standing on this little metal bench next to this big metal table, loading lumps of scrap plastic into a grinder. That was my job. <laughs> really cerebral. Every 20 minutes, you had to remember to change the barrel or you'd get flakes of plastic all over the floor. And I was dying. I was doing that and I was working as a bouncer at night. And my girlfriend at the time, you know, she knew I loved fantasy. She knew I was out of books to read and was threatening to write one. My girlfriend, now my wife of many years, said to me, why don't you just write that book? So when I went to work each day and I'd be working there, I would drift off into this world I was creating in my head, and I would be thinking about what I wanted to write. And I'd usually get flakes of plastic all over the floor because <laughs> I'd forget to change the barrel. Then I'd go to work at night in the nightclubs. I'd come home at either 1 or 2 in the morning, and you're too, you know, you're too jacked up after, after working as a bouncer for a bunch of hours to go right to sleep. So I'd, I'd light some candles. I'd put on Fleetwood Mac's Tusk album, take out the spiral notebook. Remember, this was 1982. that We didn't have computers, and I couldn't type anyway. And I and I just write. And I wrote a book called Echoes of the Fourth Magic. And and when you know, after I got it done, I didn't intend to publish it or anything. I just wanted to have something to hand to my kids someday if I had kids or maybe my grandkids and let them know, you know, this is your grandfather. I didn't want to just be another number who worked all his life and then just quietly faded away and died, you know. I wanted something to leave behind. But I, I showed the book to a few friends and they were really loving it. And they said, You should get this published. So I hired my sister to type it because, again, I couldn't type. They didn't teach that when I was in high school unless you were going into the business field, like going to be a secretary or something. They didn't teach you how to type because there were no personal computers. It was a different world. So I hired my sister to type it. I sent it. I got a bunch of really horrible rejection letters. I remember one said, Dear Leonard. You know, I'm like, <laughs> from. But anyway, when people tell me no, I'm the kind of person who will die proving you wrong. I don't like to be told no. I don't like to be told I can't do something. So I stayed with it. Um, I, I started a new career. I was working in finance. I got married. The kids came along. But I kept writing. I kept at it. And in 1987, I had the book to the point where I thought it was publishable. I thought it was ready to go. So I went back to the library and got out the writer's market and looked at all the different houses that were publishing fantasy. One of them was TSR, who were doing the uh, Dragonlance novels at the time, the very successful Dragonlance novels. Sent the book out to all these different houses went to work and went on my merry way. A couple of months later, that was in January of 87. A couple of months later, I came home from work and my wife said, you got a phone call today from an editor 
at TSR. And, you know, after the rejection letters, I'm like, I got a phone call. <laughs> Editor actually called. And she said, yeah. And so I thought about it for a minute. And I said, did he ask for Leonard? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, no, no, no. It's, her name is Mary Kirchhoff. And she called from TSR. Call her back. And that's what led me in. Now, now Mary had read the pulled echoes of the fourth magic out of a slush pile. Couldn't publish it. Because they only had room for this new world they were creating, the Forgotten Realms, and Echoes would not adapt to that. But they asked me to audition for the second Forgotten Realms novel. And I did. And that was the crystal shard. And at, at Odyssey, you were telling us about how there was all this stuff going on at TSR, sort of behind the scenes, where Dragonlance had been really popular. and Right, yeah. What was going on at TSR was they had these successful Dragonlance novels. Most of their writers, almost all of their writers, were in-house. There were people like Troy Denning and Doug Niles and Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. They all worked, and Jeff Grubb, they all worked at TSR. When they were going to do this Forgotten Realms world, Doug Niles had a book that he wanted to write. He he had already written or was working on, set on these islands. So they just included the islands into the Forgotten Realms. And Doug's book, Dark Rock or Moonshade, became the first Forgotten Realms novel. And then Doug was writing a sequel, but it would be a year before the sequel could come out. And so they realized they wanted to put another book in between that. So they were looking for someone to write the second Forgotten Realms novel. But like I said, everyone there was interested in Dragonlance. Every Dragonlance book was coming out and hitting the New York Times. Nobody had any idea whether this Forgotten Realms thing would be successful or not. So they turned to the slush pile, and that's just when my book landed. Now, had my book landed three months earlier, they probably weren't even looking for a second Forgotten Realms novel other than Doug's. So... I likely would have gotten a thank you, like what you did, we just don't have room for it letter. So three months earlier, I would have gotten a rejection letter, probably. Three months later, the numbers started coming in for the pre-sale on Doug's book, and it became quite obvious that it was going to be huge. So all of a sudden, all the in-house authors, now these are people that the book department knew could deliver a clean, quality manuscript on time people that were their friends, people they went to lunch with, people they played Dungeons and Dragons with. All of those folks were now interested in looking, or many of them were interested in taking a second look at doing a Forgotten Realms novel. So three months earlier, three months later, and I probably would have been the odd man out and would probably, or very possibly, still be working in the high-tech industry as a financial analyst or manager or something. And did you have an agent who told you not to send the book to TSR at all? Yeah, I had an agent at the time. And, and um, all right, let me back up. When I got my first rejection letters, I was trying to keep going, but it was getting harder. I got married. The kids started coming along. I was working long hours. And I had, you know, little kids at home to take care of when my wife was working because we couldn't survive on one income. And I was about ready to give up, I think. But it, as it just turns out, another one of these, just these kind of small world breaks, my sister's best friend had moved to New York and was working as a nanny or a housemaid for Mark Hamill. <laughs> yeah. So she took the book. She took the manuscript and showed it to him. And he just gave her name of an agent. And she sent it to this agency. And... The woman's name was Lulu Baskins. I remember her name. In fact, I think she's done commercials. I think she went out to the West Coast and started doing some acting because I've seen Lulu Baskins um, on commercials. And I'm 
I'm just wondering, you know, how many people named Lulu Baskins out of there. But anyway, she was awesome. She called me up and said, look, I understand why this book wasn't published. You've made some first book huge mistakes in it, but you'll fix them. You need to work on it. You've got a great voice here. Don't give up. And, you know, if you fix it, send it back to me and I'll take a look at it. And it was just those words of encouragement. She didn't even give me any specific edits on it. She just told me I had something there. That's all she said. So I thanked her and I went back to work. I kept working on it. And when I sent the book out to all the publishers, I also sent it back to that agency. But she wasn't there anymore. But the head of the agency took me on. And he didn't know where I had sent the book other than to him. When I got the offer in mid-July of, of 87 from TSR to do the second Forgotten Realms novel, not the book he had, but a different book, he didn't even want to agent me. He said I was crazy for doing it. They're going to pay you a tiny advance. You'll never see another penny af after that. Uh, it's work for hire. You don't want to ever get involved in that. And, and so my argument back was, I'm going to be published. Do you understand how big a deal that is for someone like me from where I'm from and the background I have? I'm going to be published by a real publisher who's paying me to do it, not the other way around. And he said, you're not going to make any money on it. You're crazy for doing it. But I did it anyway. And he never sold my books. Even when Crystal Shard came out and did really well, they offered me a second book. Again, he, you know, he told me, don't do it. He was an agent to me on those. He had no interest in it, and I didn't want him around because he was so negative. I did it, and the second book came out and did better than the Crystal Shard. That was Streams of Silver, came out in 89. and was like number one at Walden's. Number one at B. Dalton's. This is when Walden's had like 1,200 stores and B. Dalton's had like 800 stores or some crazy number. And that was the number one fiction book there. And he still wasn't selling my other book. <laughs> A year later, I did the third book. And again, you know, you're crazy. Without him, I got a 50% increase in royalties on my own. I got better treatment. Things were getting bright. And I started seeing fairly substantial royalty checks on the crystal shard and streams of silver. And he's like, well, that won't last. That won't last. <laughs> and I hit the New York times list with the third book. And he's still telling me I'm going about it wrong and he still can't <laughs> sell my book. So I pulled my book away from him and you know, the rest is history. I got in with a new agent and just kept going got the hardcovers, wrote other books outside of it, sold that book echoes of the fourth magic and the witch's daughter and bastion of darkness, the sequels, to Ace in around 1990, very soon after I got away from it. And it was funny because a few years later, you know, now I'm now I'm hitting the New York Times every year. I'm selling tons of books and Dritz is becoming this bit of a phenomenon. And I actually got a letter from that agent saying, I don't know what you're earning now, but I can get you more money than that. <laughs> it was bizarre. It was really bizarre. And now I don't have an agent. And I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, could you tell us about the phone call that led to you inventing Dritz? Well, when they asked me to audition for the Forgotten Realms, first they asked me if I could set Echoes of the Fourth Magic in the Forgotten Realms. And I said, what are the Forgotten Realms? Because nothing was out yet. Nobody knew about it except the people at TSR. So they sent me the only printed material they had, and that was Doug Nile's book which hadn't quite come out yet, but they already had it in stock at, at the company. So they sent me a copy of Dark Walker on Moonshade. 
So I opened up the book. I read the book, loved it, which was great because I, I you know, I, lo- I fell in love with the world immediately. That's important if you're going to work in the world, I guess. And so I, I came, I had to come up with an outline for a novel and a, and a uh, sample chapter. That's what they needed for the audition. And so I read Doug's book and, and I didn't want to use his characters, but the map only showed these Moonshay Isles, which are really tiny. And his characters were much larger than life. So anything of any consequence going up on in the Moonshay Isles, his characters were going to, at least some of them were going to have to know about it. So I wrote a sample chapter thinking they were doing another Dragonlance series where they were kind of handing characters off down the line. I wrote a sample chapter where I had Doug's, one of Doug's cool characters introducing Wolfgar, the hero of my book, a book that was going to be called The Tyrant of Icewind Dale. And I won the audition, but Mary said, you know, Bob, we don't want you to write a sequel to Doug's books. And I said, I'm not. Doug, she says, well, Doug's doing that. It's good for him. I'm not. I'm just using his character, Dareth, to introduce Wolfgar, and then he's going off screen. I'm not gonna, I don't want to use Doug's characters. I want to make up my own. And she says, yeah, but you can't use Doug's characters even for that. We don't want a book set on the Moonshay Isles. So I looked at the book and the map and the book, and I'm like, what do you want me in the water? <laughs> you know, there's nothing else on the map. Oh, we didn't send you Ed Greenwood's original maps of the Forgotten Realms, she tells me. <laughs> so then they sent me Ed Greenwood's you know, photocopies of Ed Greenwood's original maps of the Forgotten Realms, which means they sent me a stack of eight and a half by 11 papers, unnumbered, (laughs) no key. Some of them just had like a line on it with a mountain and a tree. And I I had no idea how to put these together. So I'm trying to figure out what the realms looks like. I remember I was at work and again, I was working in finance, you know, white shirt, tie, short hair over the ears. Very, 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 you know, very controlled and disciplined group. And I remember my boss was, who was the controller of the service department was going out to lunch and he said, Hey, we're going to lunch. Come on. And I said, nah, I'm going to stay here. I got too much work to do. And as soon as they all left, all the, the honchos left, because I was the, the uh, lowest ranking guy in that section of the building. I just pushed all my furniture out into the hall, out of my office. And I took off my tie and I tied it around my head like a bandana. And I went to work on Ed's, maps trying to make some sense of this gigantic world and i lost track of time because then i heard behind me what are you doing <laughs> and it was my boss and i turn around and there's the controller the director of service and the manager of service you know three like <laughs> vp level guys standing in my doorway and i explained what i was doing and the three of them looked at each other and they took off their ties tied them around their heads like bandanas and joined me on the floor and between us we figured out the forgotten realms so then we went about setting, I called Mary back and we went about setting my book in the Forgotten Realms, this vast world. I, this is going to be easy. I said, I want to go here. Oh, that's Cormier. You can't go there because Ed Greenwood's going to be there and it's his world after all. I said, well, how about here where this glacier is? That'll be cool. I'm doing Icewind Dale as a glacier. No, no, those are the Bloodstone Lands and Doug Niles is doing a module series there. And I said, well, how about here? And Oh, no, that's Calimport and so-and-so is doing a game pro- product over here. And we bounced around, 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 around. And finally, after like, Several phone calls, I just looked at the map, and there was this tiny little strip of land above the Spine of the World Mountains. It looked like a like a typo on the map, the official Forgotten Realms map now, because that had now been printed, and they sent me the official one. I said, is anybody up there by the Sea of Moving Ice? And she said, no. I said, good, that's ten towns. Leave me alone. <laughs> and so that's my book was set. So now I'm all set and going. Now back to that phone call. 
Uh, I'm at work one day. I get the phone call from Mary. She says, I'm going into a, I'm going into a, um, a marketing meeting where I have to sell your book to the sales force. This is really important for a book to be successful. But you can't use Doug's character. I said, I thought we already established this. I don't want to use Doug's character. She said, yeah, but now you're 2,000 miles away. You can't use him at all. I said, I don't want to use him. She said, but I, I'm going into the marketing meeting, and I need a sidekick for Wolfgar. And I said, Oh, all right. Well, you know, I'll call you back next week. I'll come up with something over the weekend. He says, no, I'm going into a meeting and I need a sidekick for Wolfgar Bob. And so I looked at the clock. It was almost lunchtime on the East Coast. And I said, all right, well, I'll skip lunch. I'll call you back in a little while. She goes, you don't understand, Bob. I'm late for a meeting and I need a sidekick for Wolfgar. And off the top of my head, and I don't know why and I don't know how, I said a black elf. They were called black elves back then. And there's a long pause and... And Mary says, a drow? And I said, yeah, a drow. A drow ranger. That'll be cool. Another long pause. She's a drow ranger. I'm like, yeah, a drow ranger. Nobody's ever done that before. She says, uh, Bob, there's probably a reason for that. I said, no, no, a drow ranger. That'll work. Let me do it. And she thought about it. And since she was late for the meeting, she said, well, since it's just a sidekick character, I'll let you get away with that for now. What's his name? And off the top of my head, I have no idea how or why, I said, Dritz de Warden of Dermon de Chesbernon, the ninth house of Menzo Berenzan. And she said, what? <laughs> I said, I have no idea. And she said, can you spell that? And I said, not a chance. And that's how he was born. And then I started writing the book. And the first scene had this sidekick character running across the tundra where he got jumped by some yetis and was rescued by his dwarven friend. And on page two, I knew this wasn't Wolfgar's book. It was his. I just knew this was Dritt's book. He took over and he hasn't let go. And here we are 24 years later, and I'm still writing about him. Uh, so when you started writing the books about Dritt's, uh, um, how, uh, how much of the background about Dark Elf Society already existed, and how much did you have to invent yourself? I finished the, the Icewind Dale trilogy, and we were going to go on to something completely different. But by that point, TSR was getting tons of fan mail saying they wanted more about where this guy came from. So I got the call from Mary, and she said, you know, instead of going on in a different direction, how about you do a prequel trilogy telling us where Dritz came from? So I went to work on coming up with the ideas for Homeland, for the Dark Elf trilogy. And I had the old modules that followed the giant series uh descent to the depths of the earth vault of the drow queen of the demon web pits and there were some references to drow in there the snake-headed whips were in there the matriarchal society was in there but it really didn't define them it was just you know enough information for you to run a dungeon and torture 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 your players with dark elves and then i also had the fiend folio which had a one-page entry on how to play drow by this point, which had just come out the year before, I think. And so I called back and I said, okay, I've got these modules. I've got the Fiend Folio. That's all the information I've got on Drow. What else you got? And they said, nothing. Hmm. I said, what do you mean nothing? They said, that's it. I said, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, you've got carte blanche. We want you to create the Drow Society in the Forgotten Realms, in this place you named Menzo Berenzan that you have no idea what it is. And I said, okay, that's cool. I guess. And so I went away and I'm trying to figure out how to come up with a society that could work. 
Because societies have to work. There has to be a logical consistency to them that makes sense. So you can't just have this, this group of like, you know, these, these wild and crazy dark elves who are murdering each other, you know, willy nilly. That wouldn't be a society. It'd be a mass grave with one drow standing. So I had to come up with a society that would work. I went to my library and I pulled out one of my favorite books of all time, Mario Puzo's The Godfather. And that is where I came up with the superstructure, if you will, of Menzo Baranzan from the five families of New York. I mean, one uh, one aspect of the Dark Elf Society that I've always thought was really cool where is, is when the houses go to war against each other, they'll be charged with a crime unless they can totally wipe out the house that they're attacking. Like, how did you come up with that idea? Well, I kind of took the Godfather and put it in extreme mode, you know. You know, they're... They they relish power. They crave power. They the only reason for the dark elves to have a system of justice to exact punishment, since they're all a bunch of murderers and thieves anyway, is if someone else can bring a complaint against them. Their entire justice system is a mockery if it's not based on the priestesses and what Loth says, then it goes unless someone is wronged and can prove it. So if you kill all the rest of them, nobody can bring the complaint. If nobody can bring the complaint, it never happened. Just made sense to me. Hmm. So, you know, I, I read Homeland when I was in middle school. And, and back then I really saw a lot of parallels between middle school and Menzo Berenson. Just in, <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> you know, just in terms of being this entire culture based around cruelty. I mean, was, was that something that you were thinking of when you were writing the book? Or is that something that other, other kids have, have mentioned to you? Oh, I get so many letters and I meet so many kids or now adults who would tell me that they had no friends when they were in junior high or high school. And these books became their friends. And that's why they could they could empathize so much with Dritz because, you know, he's the classic outcast hero. And, yeah, I, I think, you know, looking back on it, it wasn't a conscious thing. But when I was in junior high school, I had been like one of the better athletes I, when we had like our neighborhood football games. I was always the quarterback. I was always, you know, the pitcher when we played baseball, but I didn't grow. Everybody else did. And so by the time I got to ninth grade, I was like the smallest kid in my class. And I had this strange kind of uh, hereditary knee issue where something grew too fast in my knee and was causing incredible pain. So I was, I was pretty much crippled. I was walking around with a cane half the time. And I was the smallest kid in the class, and I was brutalized. It was um, like so many kids go through. You know, I was the outcast. I had no confidence. Um, all the, Even though I was, you know, I was one of the better students. I mean, I, I was always like one of the top students in my, in my class. But that, that didn't buy you any friends in school in 1970s America. Probably still doesn't. And the thing I had always fallen back on was my ability to play sports. And I couldn't even do that anymore. And all these other kids were growing up and going through puberty. And, and here I was like a little kid with a high voice, four foot 11 or four foot nine, actually. And, you know, like 130 pounds in the, in the ninth grade. And I was brutalized um, quite a bit. And then I remember going home. We we had junior high ended at ninth grade, and then we had high school started in the tenth grade. But because we were so crowded in my town, tenth grade was an afternoon session. So the only class up there would be the tenth grade class. 
when I went to school the following year. And I remember over the summer, I was terrified that I was going back to that. I was going to have to put up with it. And there weren't going to be seniors around to protect me or anything. Um, but over that summer, I grew about eight inches and put on about 45 pounds, started weightlifting, started boxing, and stopped taking crap from anybody. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons I became a bouncer, because most of the people you wind up having trouble with when you're a bouncer are bullies. And I love nothing more than paying back the bullies, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I've been there. I've been there, and, and I, I felt it. And I'm always the person who roots for the underdog. I don't understand cruelty. I don't like it at all. You know, I remember the only fight I got in at college outside of work was I was leaving a basketball game once, and there was this cat on the on the sidewalk, like, crying. And there were a bunch of guys just kicking it around. And I pulled my car up. I slid my car up next to them, threw open the door and threw the cat in the car, and the guy started giving me some grief. And I jumped out of the car, and there were, like, ten of them. And I just looked at the biggest kid standing there, and I just busted his face wide open. And it was like, come on, there's nine of you left. Who's first? <laughs> I was so enraged that any person could do that to a defenseless little animal. You know, I didn't care that I was about to die. But that's who I am. And so when I hear that from kids or from adults now who got through it, it just warms me. I, I don't get how we allow the kind of insanity in middle school, particularly middle school, I think. I don't, I don't get how we allow that kind of brutality. It's ridiculous. So, yeah, I, I guess it's in there. You're bringing a lot out of me. You're bringing back bad memories, dude. <laughs> Knock it off. Change the subject. <laughs> yeah, so I've been reading your Collected Stories volume that came out earlier this year, and that also contains a lot of interesting anecdotes. Could you tell us about how the transition to Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition almost killed off in Trary? You run into all these wonderful things when you're working for, when you're writing in a world that is also being used in a game that keeps changing its editions. I was writing Homeland, actually, and I got a phone call from Jeff Grubb, who was the coordinator of the Forgotten Realms. And he said, hey, Bob, um, how are you going to kill Entreri? And I said, what are you talking about? I'm not going to kill Entreri. I just started getting to know the guy, and I like him. And he said, no, 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 um, we're going to second edition, and there are no assassins. So... You have to kill him. But we like him, and we like you, so we're going to let you kill him. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And he said, well, all the assassins in the Forgotten Realms, to kind of explain what's happening in second edition, all the assassins are going to have their souls sucked up by this evil god. And that'll be the end of them. And we don't want to just do that to Entreri. It's kind of anticlimactic. He's become a favorite you know, a fan favorite. So we're going to let you kill him. And I, and I said, Jeff, I'm writing Homeland. It takes place 80 years before Entreri's even born. What do you want me to go kill his grandparents? <laughs> so no, you can do it in a short story or something. I said, Jeff, I'm not killing Entreri and you shouldn't either. And we went back, we got in this big fight and we're screaming at each other back and forth. I'm like, there's no reason to kill this character. There are no more assassins in the realms. And finally, finally I just stopped it. And I said, Jeff, I don't understand why you have, why I have to kill Artemis and Trary. And he said, because there are no assassins in second edition. So I thought about it for a minute and I said, he's not an assassin. He's a fighter thief who takes money to kill people. <laughs> and Jeff thought for a second, he goes, hey, we can do that. That's how Artemis <laughs> and Trary dodged the bullet. 
Okay, and uh, so the the rules for Dungeons and Dragons are often uh, not very realistic. Uh, so, like for example, there, there's like if you have a high level character, he can easily survive a hit uh, by Dragon Breath. Um, so, when you're writing Dungeons and Dragons fiction, like how do you balance believability versus capturing the flavor of the game? That's really hard. It's hard to explain to people who are really into the game, younger players. You know, you get a ten year old kid who's really into the game and he reads your book because. You know, in in, a, in Dungeons and Dragons, if you're a tenth level character with a hundred hit points, and a first level rogue sneaks up behind you and stabs you with his knife, you take one to four damage. Turn around and squish him. Right? <laughs> in real life, if you're a uh, uh, you know the best bouncer in a nightclub, and some drunken punk walks up behind you and shoves a knife in your back, you fall to the ground and cry. If you're talking at all, so yeah, it's always hard to balance those things. On every level. I remember after I, you know, I had Wolfgar taken to the abyss and tortured for six years by a demon in the most horrible ways I could think of to type into the book. I mean, he was brutalized beyond belief by this magical creature that could make him think he had escaped. And then he was living his life with his love and they had kids and the demon would eat the kids in front of him and things like that. Just, just totally brutalizing this guy. And so then I write Spine of the World, which is kind of Wolfgar's trying to get back into society, but he can't quite get there because he's just so crushed. And, you know, it's, 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 he's a fallen man. He's completely broken by those the six years of torture. And I got a letter from a kid that says, what's wrong with Wolfgar? He's got all his hit points back. <laughs> How do you answer that? And, yeah, it's hard. And it's really hard with fourth edition because fourth edition has a lot of mechanics that are really in there for – for game balance more than anything else. I mean, how do you shoot someone with a bow and move them 15 feet toward you? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And in writing Neverwinter, I have an anatomically correct fourth edition battle in it where I had the stacks of cards and I was trying to figure out how to make them sound like they were plausible in a battle. And it took me hours to write that fight scene. When I finished, I was ex- like exhausted and sweating <laughs> on the couch and said, never again. <laughs> It's hard. It is. It is a real challenge. And the rules change around you. I mean, if you go back to first edition when Crystal Shad was written, white dragons weren't a big deal for seasoned characters. By the time, you know, the kid comes along who's reading Crystal Shad and we're in third edition, white dragons are really bad. So he doesn't understand how Dritz and Wolfgar could have fought a white dragon and lived in the Crystal Shard. Mm. And, you know, it occurs to me now that most of the people who are coming to those early books now whether it's Crystal Shard or Homeland, most of the people picking them up for the first time are younger than the books. So, yeah, it's not an easy thing. You do your best. Uh, so in the introduction to your story, Dark Mirror, you talk a bit about racism in fantasy. I mean, what do you think about the way that Dungeons & Dragons handles race, uh, even just in terms of sort of the good light-skinned elves versus the evil dark-skinned ones? Well, I think one of the reasons why they used to be called black elves and then they stopped calling them black elves were because it hit, you know, it hit kind of close to home in terms of racism that we see. And, you know, I've always noticed there's a paradox. I wrote Doc Mirror because I was confused about the paradox where, you know, racism is bad. We know that inherently. I mean, enlightened people could care less what, where someone's born or the color of his or her skin or anything like that. And yet in fantasy, that's embraced. Now, they're different species. It's not like orcs are just some other brand of human, right? So you can get away with that. But that's always been the paradox that I've had to deal with right from the beginning of writing a dark elf who's not a bad guy, right? 
and hinting that there might be other dark elves who aren't bad guys, right? I mean, that gets difficult. And so I wrote that story to try to sort that out. And you notice at the end of the story that Drizzt is very confused. <laughs> yeah, that was me. I was still very confused about it. Because in fantasy, you know, you embody evil in a race, and then you disembody it with your sword. And that's also what mankind has done through the centuries, right? By dehumanizing the enemy so that you don't feel bad about killing them. But, you know, that that's just blatantly immoral when you get right down to it. And yet I love fantasy. So that's the paradox I had to deal with. When I'm writing my books, I, I'm not trying to give people the answers. I'm trying to get them to ask the questions. And judging from the response I've gotten to Dritz in particular regarding racism, I think a lot of people are asking themselves good questions and coming up with good answers. Uh, you know, so it's, it's sort of a tradition at Odyssey for people to collect memorable quotes. And the quote that we had from you was, quote, I was the Salman Rushdie of Star Wars. Could you uh, explain what that means? <laughs> Did I actually say that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. The Star Wars fans set up a fatwa against me after Vector Prime came out. So Del Rey got the rights to do, Ve to do the adult fiction line. And they needed to get a book out before Christmas, probably by contract. I'm not sure. But they asked me to do it. And so they introduced me to what they were trying to do in this this vast New Jedi Order series. There was supposed to be 22 books at that time. And this big story arc with this new enemy coming into the galaxy. And, and they told me, you know, here's what you need to do. You need to introduce the Vong. And they gave me kind of an overview on who the Vong were. And you have to introduce them to the readers. And you have to set up this big battle using all of the main characters. And at the end, they, they have, they, our heroes have to win, but it's really just like the opening shots in a much bigger war. So that that was my task. And so I came up with a an outline like you have to do for Star Wars, a very detailed outline of the book, and I sent it in. And I got on the phone with Del Rey and Lucasfilm, and I think it was uh, it was either Lucy Wilson or Sue Arstoni from Lucasfilm was saying, oh, this is wonderful. This is just what we want to kick off the series. But didn't anyone tell you? You have to kill Chewbacca. <laughs> and I was like, screw you what you know and we got in this big fight and i was like i'm not doing it. i'm not doing it but now it's getting late they need the book done we've only got a couple of months they got to get this book done and i've already signed the contract i've already deposited the check <laughs> like i talked to mike stackpole who was pretty much overseeing the new jedi order thing from the writers mike stackpole and jim lucino they convinced me that we were doing it for the right reason so i agreed to do it and i did it i did it i killed chewy and the death threats started almost immediately. It was uh, an incredible time. Uh, I didn't have to go into hiding, but we did actually alter a couple of stops on the book tour because we thought there were people out there in those particular locations who were going to start trouble if I showed up. It was interesting. Uh, yeah, so uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the new book, I Never Winter. Well, what's basically happened is the Forgotten Realms advanced 100 years. And so being a Forgotten Realms writer, it was incumbent upon me to advance with it. And in doing so, a lot of the people around Dritz weren't going to make the journey with them over 100 years for one reason or another. And for all, most of his adult life, most of his life I've been writing about him, other than the book Homeland, where he came from, he's been surrounded by friends of similar moral character who would take an arrow for him just like he'd take an arrow for them. 
And now I've wiped the slate clean. I've left him in a very vulnerable place. He's a bit confused. He's disappointed. He's just angry at the world for the unfairness of it all. That just when he thought he was finding peace, you know, it all got upended. And now, so he's very vulnerable. And now he meets up with a couple of folks, one in particular in Gontelgrim, who he finds attractive, intriguing, mysterious. And she's a dirtbag. And we've all seen this with friends, either friends who fall in with the wrong crowd in high school or loved ones who fall in love with someone and you know this person's really bad for them. And the question becomes, is Dritz now, as he's surrounded himself now with people whose moral compass points in a slightly different direction, are they going to drag him down into the gutter or is he going to lift them up to his level? And I don't know the answer to that. Uh, so you've also been working uh, with 3.8 Studios. Uh, could you tell us about that? Yeah, I've um, five years ago, I'm sitting at home and the phone rings and I pick it up and the guy says, hey, can I talk to Bob Salvatore? I said, speaking. And he goes, oh, man, I can't believe I'm talking to you. You're my favorite author. This is Kurt Schilling. I'm a Red Sox fan and this is bloody sock guy calling me. So I didn't believe him and I swore at him and <laughs> thought it was a prank. And he said, but, but then it really was him. And so we spent about 20 minutes just saying, I can't believe I'm talking to you. And Kurt told me that he was getting ready to retire and didn't want to go sell used cars or insurance. And he wanted to do what he loved. And that was video games. So he was starting a video game company and he wanted me to come in and create the world of Amalur. Well, what he didn't call it that. He wanted me to create the world for his MMO video game. He, you know, his World of Warcraft EverQuest type game that he wanted to build. And so I joined up with 38 Studios. At the very beginning, we found a place to put the offices. We started stealing really talented people from all the video game companies around the world. And um, we started building this MMO. And I created this world of Amalur with the help of my my old gaming group. And my wife and a friend of hers, we all got together and they were doing research for me as I built this 10,000 year skeletal history for this world. And I wanted to do really deep threads because I knew that all these artists and designers were going to be painting on this canvas we were creating. And the deeper the history, the more consistent and logical the history, the easier it was going to be for them to come in and do something that would stay consistent so that the player could be immersed in the world. This was going on for a couple of years, and we wound up buying this company called Big Huge Games from Baltimore, the studio that was developing an RPG engine. And so we said, hey, you know, this world, this IP will lend itself to our RPGs. And so we put our, our, our intellectual property, our IP, on their engine that they were building, and they, they came up with a game called Reckoning. And Reckoning comes out February of next year. And it's a single-player role-playing game for the Xbox, the PS3, and the PC. It's got killer combat. You'll be on the edge of your seat doing the combat, which is something you haven't seen in an RPG before. It's got a great story. It's an open-world RPG. The lead designer was Ken Ralston, the guy who did Morrowind and Oblivion. The art was directed by Todd McFarlane, the other guy that came in with me to join Kurt mm -hmm. in the studio. Just an amazing team, and I haven't been able to talk about it for five years because we've just we went dark. We want the games to speak for themselves, so I can't really you know say much, and I can't wait till after this game comes out because then I can blab all about it. And I just think it's mm -hmm. gonna I think it's gonna raise the bar on RP the RPG genre in computer gaming. Are, are there any other newer upcoming pro projects you'd like to talk about? Uh, the only other thing I'm working on I'm about, I'm almost done the Dritz book for next year. 
Um, I know what I want to title it, but I can't say it because I'm sure Wizards of the Coast will overrule me. Hmm. Uh, but so I'm almost done that book, and I'm also working on the end of a five-book comic series for IDW, which is New Adventures of Dritz, that I'm writing with my son Gino. So that's been pretty cool. Gino and I did a trilogy together as well a, few, a couple of years ago uh, for the Forgotten Realms, three Dritz books called The Stone of Tomorrow. Um, and now we got back together again and did a five-book comic series. So I've been keeping busy. All right. Well, we're uh, completely out of time. Um, but okay. you know, thanks, uh, Ari Salvatore. Thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. All right. Well, thanks for your interest. Thanks for asking me on. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to R.A. Salvatore for joining us on the show. All right, and so for our discussion today, we're going to be talking about the Dungeons & Dragons a pen and paper role-playing game. And we have a special guest geek joining us to talk about that. This is James Sutter. He's the co-creator of the Pathfinder pen and paper role-playing game, which is built on the Dungeons & Dragons 3.5 edition rules. He's also the fiction editor for Paizo Publishing, and he edited the anthology Before They Were Giants which pairs the first published stories by major SF writers with interviews and writing advice from the authors themselves. He's published dozens of short stories, and his first novel, Death's Heretic, set in the Pathfinder universe, is out now. So, James, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. All right, and so I thought we would just start out talking about kind of our earliest Dungeons & Dragons memories. So, uh, John, why don't you go first and just tell us sort of how did you first hear about Dungeons & Dragons? What are your earliest memories? Uh, well, probably uh, the first time I ever played D&D, &D, uh, well, the first time I ever heard of D&D &D was um, because uh, my sister uh, was playing a game uh, with some friends of hers. And, uh, you know, I, I, I must have been about eight years old and, and you, know, you know, I wasn't allowed to play or anything, but I mean, I, I, I first became aware of it then. My fifth grade teacher, Tom Tivnan, decided to, on his lunch breaks, teach, you know, half a dozen of us really nerdy kids how to play Dungeons and Dragons. Hmm. Um, and so we probably only played for a couple of months, but it really caught on. Okay. And then, you know, in my case, let's see that my, my absolute first exposure to it was when I was in daycare, uh, when I was yeah. like, like a real little kid, like, you know, four, wow. four years old or something. That's hardcore, man. So, so somebody, I think somebody had just donated some dungeon, they were, you know, adventure modules, but I never looked at them because I just had it in my head that people who play Dungeons and Dragons had, were like psychologically disturbed. And I don't <laughs> know. Four? Yeah, yeah. So it's like somehow I picked that. You know, some, you know, I'm that was really in the atmosphere. You know. In, yeah, yeah. In the, in, during the '80s, in the early '80s. Um, and so I had picked that up, and so I didn't want to. You know, I didn't want to touch them because I thought, they, like, like the Necronomicon <laughs> or something, they might drive me insane. <laughs> um, and so that pisses me off so much now because I think you know I could have gotten into Dungeons and Dragons when I was four. You know, but mm -hmm. but I didn't. But that that was like the first. First, I heard of it, and then there was this cartoon on, uh, mm. this Dungeons and Dragons cartoon that I really loved. And then uh, I was into the computer role playing games, and I'd been playing a bunch of the early. There was a company called SSI, and mm. yeah, uh, yep. and they had made a bunch of early role playing games. And then they actually got a Dungeons and Dragons license to make you know official Dungeons and Dragons games. Pool and, of Radiance. Oh, even even before Pool of Radiance, there was oh, one, there's one called Heroes of the Lance. Except and Heroes Heroes of the Lance is this horrible game. I mean, it's a <laughs> legendarily bad game, but I still loved it. And it's it was a Dragonlance tie-in. Yeah. And so then I uh, so I was I was playing that all the time. And then I was in a bookstore and I saw a dra one of the dragon early Dragonlance novels, uh, Stormblade, I think it was called. And uh, and so that kind of got me into the Chronicles, you know, the um, Margaret Weiss, Tracy Hickman books. And sort of through that, I got into the 
the role-playing game. I somehow stumbled across the fact that the, that that cartoon is on DVD, you know, and it, and it actually yeah. had a very it had a very short run. I mean, there was only about thirty episodes or so. I mean, and for some reason, though, in my mind, it was like, oh my god, I watched that forever when I was a kid. <laughs> but so I, I got it, and my and my stepdaughter Grace is nine, and I mean, she just like devoured it and like watched it over and over. <laughs> um, and I was like, wow, really? Like, I mean, this thing from the eighties that's like like actually, I mean, by most accounts, a fairly terrible cartoon, but. <laughs> Well, the the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, the thing that that sticks in my mind the most about if if you have, if you've never seen it, uh, it's about some kids from Earth and they get sort of tra- transported into this Dungeons and Dragons world, and they're always trying to get home. And every episode, I think, uh, ends with them just about to go through a portal to go home, and something happens. It's like Gilligan's Island or something. Something gets screwed up, and they end up stuck still in the fantasy world. And like every like as a kid, every episode, I was like, "Oh my God, is this going to be the one where they get home?" And then, oh no, they oh it got messed up again. It's like you know. As a kid, you you just don't realize like no, that's the that's the formula. It's other never, you know. As you said, the D and D cartoon though, like uh, as far you know, there's there's lots of things about it that actually do suck. Like uh, like there's that stupid unicorn that like, <laughs> like yeah, like oh my god, what a terrible character that was. But uh, but in it, but on the plus side though, like the the villain Venger, he like that dude is awesome. Like what a cool villain to have in the show. I mean the. It, Admittedly, he's not he's not a very good like uh, evil overlord since like you know he's constantly beaten by these kids from another world who don't even know what they're doing. But um, but still, he was he was very cool. I mean, so so James, I mean, I think you know John and I are basically the same age, and I think you're maybe six or seven years younger than we are. I'm 27. Uh, yeah. So I mean, I wonder was there? I mean, like I certainly none of my teachers approved. You know, would have like <laughs> encouraged me to play Dungeons and Dragons. So I wonder if there was like a a big shift in that. Um, there might have been. I also, uh, in fifth grade, I was in sort of a uh, uh, trial. Um, they called it a magnet program where they basically took a bunch of kids. And I think it was, it wasn't like specifically the gifted kids. They just took a bunch of kids who wanted it and like put us off in a portable at like the middle school somewhere and had sort of this little microcosm. And it just happened that one of the teachers was very artsy and into fantasy, like, the, the dude was awesome. I, you know, of all the teachers I've had, he's still one of my favorite in that, like, he read us The Hobbit and had, uh, like, he could take notes in uh, Elvish runes from Tolkien. <laughs> like, it was that fast. As a kid, he, like, represented everything that was awesome about geekhood. Yeah, I had no idea that there was the whole, like, devil-worshipping association with uh, with Dungeons & Dragons. Um Although it is interesting, um, so much, much later, you know, when I was working at Paizo, when we did Dungeons & Dragons magazines, um, we got some of the weirdest mail you have ever seen. Um, (laughs) And one of the best ones was uh, this guy who, in the 80s, um, it was one of the kids that sort of started the whole D&D satanic thing because he murdered his parents and then during the trial um, said, you know, oh, well, Dungeons & Dragons made me do it. I was... I was being controlled by some entity or something. And so that's like, that really sparked a huge anti D and D thing. Um, so while I was at Paizo, like years and years later, we got a letter from that guy, um, you know, from prison apologizing, not for killing his parents, but for the damage he had done to the gaming industry and to Dungeons and Dragons, which he still loved. And so it was like, it's one of, it lives in the file like, I think all my coworkers have the file of, like, bizarre letters that we have gotten at some point. You know, most of them from prison. But one of the rumors I heard was that in, if you play Dungeons & Dragons, if your character died, you were supposed to kill yourself. 
<laughs> oh, right, right. And that almost like, it was almost like intriguing to me. You know, it was like, <laughs> it would be like getting a motorcycle or something. It's like dangerous. You're like, wow, this game must be really awesome if people, you know, <laughs> people are that committed to it. People in our industry frequently lament the fact that there's not really controversy over Dungeons and Dragons anymore because it mm-hmm. it did more to make the game cool than <laughs> anything else could. But wasn't there also like a, a Tom Hanks movie where that happens, where a guy goes insane? Yeah, uh, I've never seen it. I think it's called Mazes and Monsters. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's basically what you're talking about, where like a bunch of kids start playing Dungeons and Dragons in the steam tunnels, and then I think somebody like kills themselves or goes insane and but that was one of those early 80s like fear-mongering things hmm. we, we you know when i was in high school kind of like middle school and high, i guess guess early high school you know i had a bunch of friends and we all wanted to play dungeons and dragons but it was like such a pain because we all lived spread out all over the place and it was it was almost impossible to get enough people together to, to actually play the game and so we were like well we should start a club at school and then we just like stay after school and play Mm-hmm. And so, like, I'm just sort of walking across campus one day, and and my uh, this group of my friends walk by, and they're like, "Oh, Dave, you should come with us." And I'm like, "Where are we going?" They're like, "Oh, we're gonna the the principal wants to see us about the Dungeons and Dragons Club." Hmm. And I'm like, "Um, okay." And the you know, and the, and and basically, like, the principal like wanted to like confer, like, see what we were up to with this Dungeons and Dragons Club because she'd heard all, all about like the you know horrible Dungeons and Dragons rumors and stuff. And so we were like, no, it's just this game. You play it with dice, and like we're showing her the rule books and stuff. And she's just like, no. <laughs> and it was oh, it made me so angry, you know. And and uh, she wouldn't even give us like an explanation. She's just like, no, I'm I'm vetoing this. You know, you guys can't play Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons uh, at the school. And 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 so basically, like after that, my friend, you know, like half my friends were like, well, it would have been nice to play Dungeons and Dragons, but we can always go home and do drugs, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And it just oh, made me so, you know, like, what, what are you doing, you stupid school? Uh, uh, I was going to say, I think a lot of people dealt with that. It's actually really funny. Are you guys familiar with uh, Chick Tracks, Jack Trick, Jack Chick? I read you about that seen? in Dragon Magazine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are these, um, you know, he's got them for everything. He's like a preacher or something, but he, he publishes these comic books that are all cautionary tales. Um, and mm-hmm. he's hardcore extremist, uh, you know, Christian guy. Um, but so all of his little comics are about, you know, how this or that will send you to hell. And there's one about Dungeons and Dragons, which is like the quintessential, like you've probably seen it online somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, quintessential thing of like uh, somebody goes and starts playing, you know, the innocent uh, Christian girl starts playing Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and then like pretty soon they're making sacrifices and like doing drugs and having sex. And like then she... Her friend kills herself because her character dies. And it's like, and I think it actually really encapsulates what a lot of people thought at that time. And, you know, also probably influenced what a lot of people thought at that time. But nowadays it's, it's pretty funny to go look it up and read through. Well, I guess you guys both had sort of people who already knew the game sort of, you know, guiding you when you started. Cause and I, I was completely trying to figure it out by myself and it's confusing as hell. Uh, <laughs> Cause you know, there's like a hundred different oh. books. And so, and I had played, you know, I'd played at that point, uh, Pool of Radiance, which is set in the Forgotten Realms. That was, as I said, the first of the gold box games. And so I just knew the Forgotten Realms, Forgotten Realms logo. So I went looking for, you know, some Dungeons and Dragons books, uh, you know, rule books. And so the first thing I bought was this book called Forgotten Realms Adventures. And it Ah. said on the back, it said like everything you need to play second edition, you know, play Forgotten Realms in the second edition. 
And so I'm like, oh, this sounds good. So I got that one. <laughs> and uh, so I start reading it. And it makes no sense whatsoever. Because <laughs> what the book is, it's, it's like telling you how to convert your first edition characters in the Forgotten Realms into second edition characters. Huh. And so, I mean, you know, it, it's, you know, it doesn't have totally useless. any like basic rules at all. So I was like, oh, damn, damn I, don't wanna, I don't understand what this is. So I went back to the store, you know, and I looked for another Forgotten Realms. There was like the Forgotten Realms box set. And it's like, this is everything you need to know need to play in the Forgotten Realms. I'm like, all right, well, you know, they suckered me with that one before, but this time it's got to be, look at this huge box. There's got to be like the <laughs> whole rules in here. So I bought this huge box and I opened that up <laughs> and there's no rules in that one either. It's like all just information about the world. I'm like, oh, they, oh, they got me again, you know? <laughs> and I don't even know how many books I bought before, <laughs> you know, before I found like the player's handbook is like the one you should buy first, you know? I think people eventually figured that one out with Dungeons and Dragons because um, I definitely remember, at least in third edition, like they got a lot better at pointing you to what you need with like the player's handbook and whatnot. But uh, but it's true, it was it was a problem for a while. Most people that I quote unquote play Dungeons and Dragons with, what we actually did is like sat around, you know, sort of thumbing through the rule books and talking and trying to explain how the game worked to whoever was new. And, you know, do that for a couple hours and then everyone goes home and, <laughs> you know, like seldom actually like get organized enough to play the game. Because I'd been taught what role playing was like, you know, it might, the teacher would sort of run us through it for a couple of months and then really encouraged us to just go make our own games and be creative. Like the idea that role playing needed to be this very structured, you know, structured thing was sort of alien. So yeah, we had no idea how the hell to play Dungeons and Dragons when we first got the books, mm -hmm. but we we sort of didn't realize that that should stop us. And so there was a lot of like, okay, well, I understand Thacko, so I know how to hit somebody, <laughs> yeah, and I know how to get my hit points and what the various classes are supposed to do. Okay, great, let's go on adventures. Like we were never, we never were sticklers for the rules, and it actually wasn't until. It was actually sort of a shock for me when I started working in the industry and was like, oh, I need to learn these rules quickly so that I don't look like I'm a total idiot compared to all these other guys. Well, okay, one of the books I bought was this, like, castle guide, and it has all these rules for siege warfare. And mm, I was just nice. looking I was looking through this. I was like, oh, my God, it would take me, like, a week. Like, now, as an adult, it would take me a week to figure this out, you know? <laughs> I loved those source books like that, though. And, like, the Arms and Equipment Guide. Like, oh, that, that, yeah, I, that's awesome. That was one that I bought. <laughs> I, I think I cited the uh, Arms and Equipment Guide as a source for, like, several papers that I wrote during middle school. You know, and <laughs> the, the teachers didn't know or didn't care, you know. Um, because, of course, like, since I started playing Dungeons and Dragons, every time you had a free topic that you could pick in, like, history or <laughs> English or whatever, it was always medieval weapons, the use thereof. <laughs> um, yeah. But I want to say about that arms and equipment guy. Yeah, that thing is amazing. And I, those were, I think, my favorite source books were the ones where they didn't give you more rules, but they gave you more, like, information you could use. Like, And that book was really good because it says, you know, like, this is the difference between ring mail and scale mail and chain exactly. mail. Exactly. You know, this is the difference between a saber and a falchion and a long sword and a broad, you know, broadsword and a two-handed sword, all this stuff, you know. Yeah, it's the, it's the only reason any of us know, understand mil, uh, <laughs> understand historical weapons at all is because of poring over D&D books, right? It's true. It's true. And that's why, actually, you know, frequently you'll meet people who are really into medieval stuff. And they can tell instantly whether you've actually done research on <laughs> D&D because, like, there are a few things that people get wrong. And the uh, the medieval recreationists will get really pissed if you 
if you use D&D terminology for things when it's something that Gary Gygax got right. wrong. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember what much of them are, but yeah, there will always be somebody who's like, God, it's not called chain mail. You just, like, it's either mail or it's chain. <laughs> right, right. What campaign settings were you guys really into? I mean, Dark Sun was my favorite. Oh, yeah. Dark Sun, Dark Sun is definitely the coolest world, I think. It has the best magic, the, the best uh, sort of stuff to dealing with magic where, like, you know, it's like creates an environmental catastrophe when you use magic. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, if it, if you haven't played it, it's basically like Mad, it's like a fantasy version of Mad Max. It's sort yeah. of post-apocalyptic fantasy. And on the box, it says, you know, everyone starts out at third at level three and you're probably going to die anyway. And, hmm. you know, it's just really brutal. This is only, only for high level, like advanced players. And I was like, well, I've, I've never actually managed to play this game. But uh, that that sounds like me. You know, I never actually... I found out about Dark Sun sort of later. Like, I knew that it existed, but I didn't know anybody who had the box. So, you know, we didn't play because nobody owned it. But uh, I always liked... And I only ever played one Planescape game. But I remember oh, yeah. always thinking that Planescape was really cool. Planescape, uh, Planescape was probably my favorite overall, now that you mention it. Because, um, yeah, because, because it does offer you that variety and... Uh, it, it just makes all of the worlds connected. So, like, you know, so from Planescape, you could, you, your characters who are in the Planescape setting, you know, you could end up in Dark Sun, you could end up in Greyhawk, you could end up in Forgotten Realms. It's because it's, it's like this whole multiverse thing. And, and, and in Planescape, there's this like central city called Sigil. And, and, and it's like, it's sort of like the city, it's like sort of like a city outside of the universes. And, and it's like, the, it's sort of a hub. I'll tell you, my least favorite was probably Ravenloft. Um, oh really? Was, yeah, I mean it was very cool uh, because it was like a horror version of, of like you know sort of D and D role playing. But my DM was just entirely too st- sadistic, and so he made it like not fun at all. And like you know, I mean, because like you know how you're playing, like you play D and D, and you spend all this time building up your characters. Like you know, if you're gonna get if you're gonna get like uh, drained by a wraith or something, then like you like you lose a level or something. It's like that's a traumatic experience, right? Yeah. Well, that kind of stuff happens in Ravenloft all the time. And plus, like, you know, like, we made characters not knowing anything about Ravenloft, and so, like, you know, our, our, like, our, like, wizard and our priest and everything, they're just, like, completely useless in Ravenloft, because, like, anytime they use their magic, terrible things happen, and the <laughs> priests, like, you know, they were completely cut off from their gods, so they were, like, going mad and everything, and it's just, like, it's just, like, one, like, terrible thing happening to you after another, and, like, there's, like, no triumph. Like I said, I didn't actually get to play the game that much, because it was hard to get people together. Um, but one time we did actually manage to get together and actually play this, this really well-designed adventure that I had run. Part of, uh, part of what happens is that, uh, you know, like those, like, a some kobolds like bust a hole in the floor and they all come pouring out. And, uh, and so then after, you know, after that was over, we all sort of slept over. It was like a sleepover party. And then I woke up in the morning and I'm just like hanging out and reading or something. And I say one of my, I hear one of my friends say so loudly and distinctly, I think that he's awake. He's like, the little men, they're coming up out of the floor. Hmm. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> I look over and, and he's sound asleep. It just sort of like made me feel good that my adventure was so vivid that he was, uh, you know, <laughs> dreaming about it still. When I was in a game at Paizo with a bunch of my coworkers, we'd been playing for like two years. Uh, and I had decided that I just, I didn't have time anymore. At the time I was in a band that was starting to get big enough that it was taking over a lot of my life. And so I had to drop out of the game. But I didn't tell people that. I just told the DM, and we worked out that he was going to make that happen. And so over the course of the, this session, uh, without any of my, you know, my comrades mm-hmm. knowing, 
like I knew my character was going to die, and so I just kept doing all this, you know, valiant stuff. And we had this big, amazing, you know, cinematic scene, and everybody, you know, sort of thought that the DM would, you know, save me at the last minute or whatever because it was basically a cutscene, and he just killed the hell out of me. So it was amazing watching the shock on everybody as as my character died. Um, which is why I've always said, like, a lot of people are really afraid of character death. They think it makes for a bad game. Whereas I think character death is so much fun because then you get a chance to roleplay something you never get to roleplay in life, which is, you know, your dramatic death scene. Like, that's that's so much fun. That's a huge opportunity for drama and legend and, you know, remember me, my brothers. <laughs> uh, Do you guys ever have any, like, disastrous experiences, like big fights <laughs> breaking out or, or anything like that? You know, I, I remember at one point uh, playing with a guy who was kind of new and uh, he was DMing for the first time, and his campaign was taking place in, like, an Antarctica sort of setting, and he didn't understand the idea of sort of time-lapse or, you know, cutting ahead. And so we huh. spent, like, an hour where we were traversing this, you know, 100-mile snowfield, and he'd just be like, it's really long. You're still walking. You're still And we're like, okay, well, we go until we get there. And he's like, no, like, you don't understand. It's really long. It's, it's, it's a long way. And so finally after an hour, we were like, the hell with this. We're going home. Call us when we get to the dungeon. Yeah. Um, Actually, you know, I thought of I thought of an example in-game where there was a, a weird sort of conflict. Uh, um, this was when I was, like, when I was 13 and I was playing with my stepdad's, you know, gaming group uh, who were all otherwise adults. And... Uh, like this, I don't remember. I guess this was second edition, and so like you know, like the party rested or something, and and you know, you know, you get like your constitution bonus back as healing or whatever, something like that, and uh, and some person in the party like like recovered like quite a lot of hit points and i was like i was just like astonished i was like wow what's your constitution that's a lot and she like screamed at me like like what what why is it any of your business i don't i don't go around asking you what your constitution is <laughs> like whoa, wow. whoa oh okay um speaking of like fights in uh, dungeons and dragons there was this i read this this there's this really good book called masters of doom about the guys you know like john carmack and john romero making uh the, the computer game doom and yeah. all the guys at the company, they were like playing Dungeons and Dragons. At the same time, they were working on on Doom and Quake. And so, like, it's it's weird how the like work conflicts sort of like manifested within the game. <laughs> and so, and John Carmack was the DM, and so he had introduced something called the Hellgate Cube, which was like I don't know somehow you could use it to get the most powerful weapon to ever exist, but there was a chance that it would destroy the world, like a fairly high chance that it would destroy the world. And uh, and John John Romero was just determined to to open it up and and get this weapon, and everyone else was telling him no no don't don't do it, and it comes down to this die, you know this dice roll, and uh, and so he rolls the dice and destroys the world, and the whole campaign is over, and everyone's like all pissed, <laughs> everyone's all pissed off at him, <laughs> and it's kind of the same thing happened with the company too, you know <laughs> yeah right uh, well yeah I mean why don't you, could you talk maybe just about how you went from being a hobbyist to, to doing this sort of professionally? You know, I, like I said, I'd always loved fantasy and gaming. And even as early as college, I was writing sort of science fiction and fantasy stories. But it was definitely still, you know, a side thing. And then uh, I was working as a journalist right after college. And being a journalist while I was in college was awesome because I got to, you know, write for the, the University of Washington paper and just do all this, all sorts of stuff. Like at one point I was uh, like a... Uh, backstage like i was like an extra you know non-participatory but 
a uh, an extra guy in a suit at a lesbian porn shoot and wrote about like what it's like to be behind the scenes at uh, <laughs> you know, a porn shoot or um like uh you know what it's like to try out for wheel of fortune or whatever um and a bunch of other just random sort of gonzo articles and so i got out of college and i was like being a journalist is awesome and then i discovered that actually being journal a journalist is really boring um because i i loved to write but i didn't really have any desire to be a reporter um you know i didn't really care about facts i just liked <laughs> writing um and that goes over a lot better at a college paper or like an alternative paper than it does at, uh, you know, your little community, uh, you know, covering little league games and retirement homes and things like that. So, I mean, I was, I was a little bit disgruntled about that. Um, and then I was looking around for other magazine jobs and saw that, you know, Dungeon and Dragon and Amazing Stories, which Paizo had recently relaunched, uh, were all based in Bellevue. And so I was like, oh, clearly, clearly this place is awesome. I need to go work there. And so I had, like, a really good portfolio at that point. I had a lot of stuff published, and I went in and was like, I would love to be an editor. And they were like, well, we have nothing. Uh, you know, we have no openings, but you can help us find images for our website for a nickel a JPEG. And I was like, <laughs> you know what? You're on. And so I, I did a lot of just, like, grunt jobs there, and then I was the editorial intern for a while, and then I worked customer service for a while. And uh, finally, like, I, you know, I really loved the people but I was like, I gotta, I gotta be an editor. I gotta be editing. And at that point, um, one of the little community papers that I was writing for had offered me a pretty sweet, sweet job as like the, you know, the features editor or something there. And so I talked to, talked to the head folks at Paizo and they were like, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and bring you on. And so then I became assist, an assistant editor at Dungeon Magazine. And really from there, just sort of learned the ropes and uh, worked my way up. And after Dungeon, then, uh, you know, was working on Pathfinder, like a lot of the campaign setting stuff. Um, in it, like now I'm the fiction editor because I'm the guy in charge of like the novels and the short stories and everything we do tied into the world. But so I, I'm really happy that in addition to doing the fiction stuff, I also get to do a lot of the a lot of the world design, a lot of the development. I've I've never been really keen on the math like I can do the math, you know, making sure a monster or an adventure or something is balanced. But I really like the, uh, the fluff rather than the crunch. So like if there are kids listening to this right now and they like Dungeons and Dragons, they might want to like get a job, you know, in publishing like that someday. How, uh, how important is it that they have lesbian porn shoot experience? <laughs> um, I would say it was critical. You know, I actually, I think I did include that in my portfolio. <laughs> I haven't played Dungeons and Dragons really since high school. I mean, and like since you've been so involved in in it, could you talk about like what are some of the ways that the game has sort of changed, or what have been some of the big events, say, in the last like ten years? Not to not to toot my own horn, but I think recently a lot of folks have been focused on the whole Paizo and Wizards of the Coast uh, stuff. I mean, there's uh, when the magazines um, when Dungeon and Dragon went away, uh, or sorry, didn't go away, but in print form. Uh, when they switched to being all digital uh, through Wizards of the Coast, a lot of people got really upset because they'd been reading those magazines since they were uh, since they were kids. I mean, those magazines have been going for a long time. And then also when uh, Wizards introduced 4th Edition, a lot of people had really mixed feelings about it. Like, it's a cool game, but it's a very different game than 3.5. 
And, uh, you know, just like the powers work differently, like there's less of an emphasis on setting and more of an emphasis on sort of some of the mechanics. And so people people were really divided when 4E came out. You know, we call it the addition wars uh, because a lot of people really, really felt strongly about that. You know, they wanted either they were really into 3.5 and didn't want to change or they were really into 4E and thought everybody else was an old fogey who couldn't handle the future. And so a lot of people were really angry. And then when Paizo, when we made the call, and it was, I'll tell you, it was scary as hell to decide to say, uh, you know, stay 3.5 and make this Pathfinder role-playing game. Because, you know, we'd been working with Wizards, some either as a subsidiary or within the company, you know, many of us for, you know, our whole careers. Um, you know, I was never at Wizards. I'm a little bit too young for that. But, uh a bunch of my friends and coworkers were. And so the idea that we would go do something different seemed monumentally stupid, but ultimately we felt like that was the direction we wanted to go. I mean, how has the rise of the computer role-playing games, the you know World of Warcraft stuff, how has that affected the pen and paper? I think there's no question that certainly some of the people who would have played Dungeons & Dragons play World of Warcraft instead, right? But at the same time, there's this whole... I mean, World of Warcraft is so, so prevalent. I mean, you've got a statistically significant percentage of the world's population, you know, is playing or has played World of Warcraft. That's a huge amount of people who have been introduced to the idea of fantasy role-playing who, who may never have been otherwise. So, and, you know, and some of them, I think, do come over to the pen and paper side because pen and paper offers such a different experience. You know, you're at the table with your friends. You know, there's there's no limit with a pen and paper RPG to how creative you can be. The pen and paper RPG audience tends to be a bit older. Like there are definitely, you know, there are definitely teenagers playing and whatnot, but a, a big chunk of the audience are the people who, like us, who remember second edition and things like that. Do the, is there soft, do people sort of incorporate software into the pen and paper games, like to help you like resolve the combat or uh... People do play over Skype and stuff, and do you? Do you know, some people do. Um, I know that you know virtual tabletop stuff and people playing, uh, you know, play by post. Like once upon a time, uh, there were whole communities of people who played via letters, um, and then you know via email, and now via chats and message boards and things. And so I think there are definitely lot. There's definitely lots of online gaming going on. There's also plenty of people who use you know, who use their iPhones and their iPads and stuff at the table, you know, because certainly it's really easy to, instead of digging through your book bag and carrying around a huge bag of 10 books, to just load the PDFs on your iPad and then search for the rule you need. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I can definitely see how uh, stuff like that would be useful. And I, I mean, I've even, I even kind of boggled at the fact that there didn't seem to be anything like that uh, for, for 4E, which is what um, my D&D group plays right now. Uh, sort of like I can see, like having played the, the Neverwinter Nights uh, computer role playing game, um, which is one of the more modern. Um, I mean, it's probably old now, but I mean, it's one of the more modern um, sort of actual D and D officially licensed D and D computer games. Um, but uh, but I mean, I, I, I there's times when I'm playing 4E where I'm like, oh well, like in, in if I was playing Neverwinter Nights, I can totally see how this would be awesome, and and I would use this power all the time, but. Uh, in playing the pen and paper version, it's just like so complicated to figure out how to even use it that um, that it becomes problematic. There's things where like you use a power and then it's like 
you know, it has recur, it has it has damage that happens like in in future rounds, and uh, and there's other things that happen, and it's just like it's hard to keep track of everything, and it's even, and it's hard to even keep track of everything, all of your other skills and powers that. Like like fighters, uh, fighters sometimes get attacks of opportunity when uh, when a target moves away from them or something, and it's like it's hard to even remember all of that stuff. And I, I could see how if if you if you had like a computer helping you out with the battle or something, that would really um, help out. I had a friend who for a while worked on the um, if you're familiar with Surface from Microsoft, which was their sort of like touchscreen table type technology. Mm. Yeah, of course. I mean, they're all nerds. Like the first <laughs> thing they did was like modify that that engine so that they could play D and D on it and make it, you know, really cool. It just never, you know, it never made it to market. And like, part of that's just because like, you know, it's hard to project things onto a table and giant touch screens are still expensive, but they won't be forever. All right. So yeah, I think we're, we're running short on time here. So I guess just to, to wrap things up, uh, James, could you just tell us, you know, like, uh, what are you working on? Uh, you know, what's, uh, what do you have coming up? Well, actually, my uh, my first novel, uh, which is called Death's Heretic, um, comes out on the 23rd of November. Uh, and that's a, uh, you know, we talked earlier about sort of Planescape. It's very much like that. It's tied into the Pathfinder RPG world, but it's all about a guy who is uh, bound against his will to the goddess of death, and he's tracking down a soul that's been kidnapped from the afterlife. So definitely that sort of planes hopping thing. And then, you know, a bunch of game books that I'm working on as always, but that's the big thing right now is uh, the novel. All right, great. Uh, so thanks, James, for being on the show. No, thanks for having me, you guys. This was really fun. This is the best podcast I've been on yet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, thanks to R.A. Salvatore for being on the show. And uh, and thanks to all 100 people who have rated us on iTunes. We uh, hit our goal of 100 ratings. Uh, by the end of the year, I wasn't actually sure we were going to make it. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's only November and we're there already. So uh, thanks, you guys. We really appreciate it. And, you know, of course, one of the other ways you can support the show is to leave a comment over on io9. Because uh, if you leave a comment, that lets our corporate overlords know that you love us. And uh, so go over there, comment early, and comment often. All right. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.